You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Today we're talking about the question, where does Hebrew come from, with Christopher Ralston. Yeah, Chris is uh, is a linguist. You know, he teaches at George Washington University. Which you think would be extremely boring, by the way. Yeah. As a linguist. It's it's not. But it's not. Because you start actually reading texts in the language in which they were written, and the more you get into it, it's like, I've been lied to my whole life, this Bible. <laughs> not really. But, you know, it's it, you, you see things that English uh, sometimes necessarily has to cover over because, you know, you have to get to your point. You can't, yeah. like... Well, I cut you it, off. So. Where does yeah. he teach? Anyway, yeah, he teaches at George Washington University. He's an associate professor of Northwest Semitic Languages and Literature. That's a mouthful. We'll talk about that another time, not now. But anyway, yeah, we talked about where does Hebrew come from and how does it affect, you know, like when parts of the Bible were written, stuff like that. Just fascinating stuff. All right, let's head into the conversation then. Let's read the text word for word, line by line, and see what it says. Let's let the chips fall where they may. The interpretive traditions are really fascinating, but right now we're going to look at what the actual text says. And I believe you can discern that, and I can discern that. My fidelity is to the text and to what it says. You know... Some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow, or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. All right, Chris. Well, listen, thanks for being on the podcast here. And I just got a question for you. Uh, this is a question that is, uh, is on everyone's mind. Every Christian I know is asking this question. Where does Hebrew come from? Yeah, great question. Isn't it, though? It's a fantastic question. Where you know, People, hold on here. Do not press fast forward or whatever you do on these podcasts. Just listen, because this is really interesting. Where, where does the Hebrew language come from? Because the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. But Hebrew has a history. There's a language, it's a beginning, and when did it begin, and how did it begin, and all that kind of stuff. Let's get into that. All right. That sounds very good. So, the earliest Hebrew inscriptions we have hail from about 900 BC. And so, that's when our epigraphic evidence comes from. Okay, what, what does epigraphic mean? Uh, very good. So, epigraphic basically means inscriptional. So, our earliest Hebrew inscriptions come from probably the early 9th century BC, BCE. And 
so for example, we have some from a site called Rehove, really nice inscription, 9th century. What's it written on? It, it's written on a potsherd, and okay. so it's a it's a really fascinating piece. And so we have the old Hebrew script there. If we push down a little bit later to the the late eight hundreds, early seven hundreds, we get some fascinating Hebrew inscriptions from a place called Kentiladajrud. Those are especially important because they mention things such as this uh, Yahweh of Samaria. Uh, Yahweh of Taman, Yahweh and his Asherah. So, according to those inscriptions, which are inscriptions that hail basically from the late 9th, early 8th century BC, we actually see that some ancient Israelites, their Hebrew inscriptions, Hebrew script, some ancient Israelites actually believe that Yahweh had a consort. So, the God of Israel had a consort. So, like a girlfriend. Yes, yes, yep. and if we push down even further, a little bit further from the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, namely Samaria, we have inscriptions that probably come from the reign of Jeroboam the second, uh, a king of northern Israel. So, really fascinating corpus. So, that's basically the beginning of Hebrew as it's attested on inscriptions. So, that's the evidence that we have. Now, some people say, well, what about the Bible? The Bible's older than that, isn't it? But, we, like, the oldest manuscripts of the Bible are not as old as these inscriptions that we have. That's right. Right. So, we have no portion of the Bible, it seems, uh, from the first temple period. So, all of the texts which we have were actually, which are biblical, uh, come from what we call the Second Temple period. So, basically, the time period from about 516 BCE down, but we don't even have any that are that early. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, the oldest ones we have are the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the earliest of those is probably late 4th century, early 3rd century BC. So, right, we don't have any biblical texts that are nearly as old as these Hebrew inscriptions we have from places such as... Okay, so, so we have these biblical texts, some of which are early Second Temple period. Can we say like 5th century BCE or later, or certainly later with the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, 200, 100 BC? But we're looking at like that second half of the that first millennium before the time of Christ. That's right. And the other stuff, though, but we, that's the, the other stuff only goes back to like the 900s or something, or the 10th century or 9th century. So, that's – the biblical story is much older than that. Yes, it is. The biblical story is – and there's some discussion, a, a fair amount of discussion about just how much older – Hebrew as a language is. And so, because I come from the the Johns Hopkins University uh, tradition, the Albright tradition, uh, I think that certain biblical texts such as Exodus 15 and Judges 5 probably hail from something around 1100 BC, perhaps 1200 BC, something such as that. Those are really archaic texts. The fascinating thing is we don't have any inscriptions that go back quite that far. So, how would you know when you say that these passages, Exodus 15, Judges 5, are archaic and older, if we don't have evidence of it being written back then, how would you know? Is it from the language or how how can you place the date on those? 
Yes, indeed it is. So, basically, there are features in the Hebrew language of those really archaic texts, such as Exodus 15 and Judges 5, which are similar to certain features, for example, of the Ugaritic language, which hails from the 13th century BC. And so, when we do comparative analysis, we say to ourselves, look, these Hebrew texts in the Hebrew Bible, these really archaic texts, they have features that are shared with Ugaritic. And Ugaritic is what explained that. Ah, yes. So, Ugaritic, uh, Ugarit is a place in Syria, right on the Mediterranean coast. It's one of the most beautiful sites one could imagine. The architecture is heavily stone. Uh, I visited there a number of years ago. It was a really wealthy city, and there were some scribes there, many scribes there, it seems, and they wrote in a language which we, we've dubbed, we call Ugaritic. It's an alphabetic language, it's an alphabetic script, and those texts come from about the 13th century B.C., and these are wonderful texts. They're about Baal, they're about Asherah, they're about El and Anat. So, really fascinating Canaanite literature. And when we look at the language of Ugarit, and then we compare it with certain features of these really archaic texts in the Hebrew Bible, we find shared features. And that helps us to say, look, Exodus 15, Judges 5, these are archaic Hebrew. This is basically our oldest Hebrew. And even the inscriptions don't go back that far because they don't reflect those same sorts of really archaic features. And that's not surprising because our inscriptional record picks up, as I say, about 900 BC. And that's how we would have this evidence that, for instance, like source criticism, that there are different parts that have been placed together because maybe Exodus 16 or Exodus 14 maybe don't have these same characteristics that we find in Exodus 15. So, it leads scholars to believe that those were written down at different times and then put together later. Right. As you know, that's a really complex subject and there's a lot of evidence which demonstrates that uh, and uh, it's very complex. But indeed, you're right that basically when we look at the text of the Hebrew Bible, we see that some texts, indeed, Exodus 15 is really archaic, but the texts that come before it and after it, chapter 14, chapter 16, are not nearly as archaic. So, it, it allows us to see that when we look at the biblical text, we're looking at a wonderful library of literature, even when we're in the same book. Uh, and different pieces hail from different time periods. And these are, of course, stories, many of these, right? The, the text of Exodus 15, the Song of the Sea, the Israelites crossing, uh, the Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds. Uh, it's a beautiful story. Probably was told and retold so very often, probably during these retellings, it seems that even the archaic way of speaking that was part of the first tellings of these stories, that gets preserved in the biblical text. And so, it's absolutely scintillating. It's sort of like saying thee and thou yeah, nowadays, the power of Scripture. People want to retain that, quote, older language. And uh, that doesn't mean the person saying thee and thou is living in the 17th century or something, but it just it's, it's the power of that uh, way of talking that gets attached, you know, to, to, to the text and people just like it that way. 
Yeah, I, I feel exactly that's exactly the way that I think about it as well. And so when I grew up, I grew up on the King James Version and the the way that I uh, recited Psalms twenty Psalm twenty three. You know, I I recited in that older fashion, you know, yeah. the, the Elizabethan English. And I still find it to be quite beautiful, <laughs> actually, the 23rd Psalm and various other texts. And I think that's right. The ancient Israelites found the same thing. When they recited the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15, they used that archaic language. They preserved that archaic language. Mm-hmm. But the majority of the biblical text comes from later periods, of course. Well, I was going to take us there just to finish out this thought. Maybe we could swing the other way and say, you know, I'm thinking of, of Aramaic influence and other things that may play into it. What would be some of the later texts that we could say may have been some of the last uh, pieces of the of the Old Testament that were written? Are, are there ways to tell that based on this style of writing? Yes, there there are on the language, or if we're dealing with manuscripts or inscriptions, a style of writing as well. Uh, so, for example, Chronicles is written in what we often refer to as late biblical Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew portions of Daniel, of course, portions of Daniel are written in Aramaic. Uh, chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28 is all Aramaic. Uh, but there are portions of Daniel in Hebrew, and those portions are written in later Hebrew. So, texts such as Ezra, Chronicles, uh, Nehemiah, Daniel, they're written in what we refer to as late biblical Hebrew, and there are features that characterize that. So, basically... We have features of the language itself, for example, in Exodus 15 and Judges 5, which are very old, very archaic, preserve really old patterns with regard to verbs and nouns. Uh, And then we have the late features uh, in books that come from the Second Temple period, such as Chronicles. Uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel. And then, predictably, of course, there are a lot of books or portions of books which are right in the middle, things such as Samuel and Kings. So, okay, um, we're talking about texts. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Hebrew and geek out a little bit here, but how old is that language? I mean, it's, it's, it's probably hard to tell, but you mentioned that Hebrew is an alphabetic language, and I can imagine people saying, well, what other kind of languages are there? The <laughs> languages that have alphabets and nouns and cons- uh, vowels and consonants and things like that. So, so um, le- let's talk about that. Let's go backwards. You know, you're like in the, in the, the, around the 12th century, perhaps, for things like Exodus 15 and Judges. Can we, like, like let's go back and say, when could Hebrew have begun even as a language? When would that have been possible? So, we know that the alphabet was invented around 1800 BCE or BC. We have evidence from places such as uh, places in Egypt, such as uh, Sarabid al-Hadam and Wadi al-Hol. These are locations in Egypt. And we have writing there about that time, which is alphabetic writing. And before that point, there was writing. Writing began in human history about 3200 BC, BCE. Uh, so, for example, Sumerian is a language which probably hails from about that time period. Probably a generation or two after that, we have writing in Egypt. So, we have writing in Mesopotamia and Egypt. 
around 3200 BCE, but it's not an alphabetic writing system. Uh, we get the alphabet around 1800 BC. BC. What are the writings? Talk a little bit about, I mean, this, this is very complicated stuff, I think, but talk a little bit about Egyptian, the language and just how they depicted it on paper and the, 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 the kind of, um, you know, if it's not alphabetic, what is it? And even Sumerian, you know, this very, very ancient culture that was powerful and seemed to give rise to a lot of uh, cultures that we even read about in the Bible. You don't really read about Sumerians in the Old Testament, to my recollection, but you do read about Assyrians and Babylonians and things like that. But so, yeah, just take just take us back and just because I know people are wondering if it's not an alphabet, what is it? Yeah, that's a great question. So the uh, these early writing systems in Mesopotamia and Egypt work in this fashion. They began both of them. Mesopotamian writing was Sumerian and Egyptian writing uh, with hieroglyphics as heavily pictographic scripts. And basically, when you looked at the picture, it was whatever was depicted in the picture, it represented an entire word, Mm -hmm. normally a noun, perhaps a verb. But the picture represented an entire word, or we might say for later periods, the sign, if it's not so pictographic. The sign used in Mesopotamian writing and Egyptian writing would represent a whole word, or it would represent an entire syllable, or it could represent a determinative, which is basically an adjectival sort of uh, feature of the language. But especially, it's useful to focus in on those first two. Namely, if you're looking at Egyptian writing or uh, Sumerian and Akkadian writing, the sign, the symbol, represented not a single letter, but an entire word. And that is a cumbersome way of communicating, right? What's that? I mean, there are many, many, many more syllables in any language and words than there are letters, right? Yeah, that's right. There definitely are. And so, the writing systems of Mesopotamian Egypt, as you might imagine, because it, they're representing words or syllables, there are usually seven or 800 different signs in that language. So, the beauty of the alphabet is that when you have an alphabetic writing system, namely a writing system in which each letter or grapheme, we might say, represents a single phoneme, uh, which is the smallest meaningful unit of sound. So, when we get an alphabet, uh, we have a dramatic innovation in writing. So, we no longer have to have six or eight hundred signs. We normally have in an alphabetic writing system somewhere between 25, 22, 30, yeah. something such as that. Right. So, Dramatically different systems, for sure. And so, these complex uh, non-alphabetic writing systems, these are the earliest. And alphabetic writing begins about 800, 1800 BCE. And so, Hebrew must have hailed after that point when the alphabet was invented. Is there a way of tracing the beginnings of the alphabet around 1800 is there a way of tracing that beginning to what would eventually become the Hebrew language? Because, you know, the Hebrews didn't invent the alphabet. They got it. So, it took time from 1800 on. And, and I'm, I'm making a point of this because, you know, from the – with respect to the – like the chronology of the biblical story taken at face value, you know, when you're at 1800, I mean, Abraham's long gone. 
Right. So I, I mean, it's it, it does it does affect how we think of like what the Bible is and when it was written and why it was written, and because there's no Hebrew in existence until a much later time. So it, it, can you give any sort of definitive direction on? when Hebrew might have arisen, or, or what scholars tend to say, when Hebrew might have arisen as a, as a language that people could actually communicate in? So basically, you know, 1200, 1100 BC, BCE is when we, we can posit that we have Hebrew. Before that point, we would have had a Semitic language. We would have even had a Northwest Semitic language. Uh, Ugaritic, for example, is a Northwest Semitic language. Uh, earlier than Hebrew. And in fact, these texts from Wadi El Hol and Serbid El Hadam, these are Semitic languages as well. And they're even Northwest Semitic, so they're similar to Phoenician and Hebrew in that regard. But as you indicate, there is no way that Abraham would have been speaking Hebrew. Uh, it wasn't around at that point. So not only did we not have the writing system, we didn't really have the language yet either. How about Moses? Yeah, Moses is a very good, very good question, and uh, I'm probably more conservative conservative than than some people are. I think by the time we're talking about Moses, so if we put Moses ballpark him somewhere in the middle of the 13th century. BC, BCE, I think that we could probably posit that there was some sort of a fledgling form of Hebrew, but the Hebrew that Moses would have spoken would have been deeply archaic, uh, probably at least as archaic in terms of the way that it sounded, uh, uh, in terms of the ways things were spelled. It would have been analogous to, or maybe even earlier than the things that we have in Exodus 15 and Judges 5. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. 
This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. And so it would have been not at all, I shouldn't, I should. I don't want to exaggerate, but it would be very different from the Hebrew that students learn today when they open up the book of Genesis or Exodus and start reading it. it th- that's not the language that people living in the first millennium, you know, from 1000 to 2000 BC, that is not the language that they would have handled. This is a language that really, uh, it comes by later. That's right. So, when we look at the, the biblical text, uh, it doesn't seem to be the language of the late second millennium BCE, uh, except for those texts that we've talked about, Exodus 15, Judges 5, and a handful of others. When we open up Genesis, we're basically seeing Hebrew as it was spoken during the period of the monarchy. So, what we're seeing when we open the Hebrew Bible, much of it, uh, Genesis, for example, uh, it's the language that would have been spoken during the period of the monarchy. And uh, so, standard biblical Hebrew. Stay tuned for more Bible for Normal People. Hey, I got a question for you. How many normal people does it take to run the only God-ordained podcast on the internet? You might think two, but did you know there's more to the podcast than just these interviews? That's right. You can join the community of normal people everywhere for as little as $1 per month on the Patreon platform. What does that mean? Well, that's a very normal question you've asked. There are extra behind-the-scenes materials, a Slack community where you can chat with other normal people, extra videos, and more. There's even a group of us normal people that meet to discuss the podcast, giving suggestions and feedback, and in general, help guide Pete and Jared to make the best normal decisions. People like Jeremy Jones, Dave Carlton, Jonathan Beck, Lucas Gibbs, Rachel Taylor, Brock Beasley, A. Todd Rivetti, Lelia Fry, Kristen Backman, and Greg Jones. Thanks for being an awesome set of normal producers. Remember how I asked how many people it takes to run this podcast? Well, it's more than two, and you're already a part of that. If you want to get access to any of those normal extras I mentioned before, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people and check it out. Let's get back to it. Can I get back to Jared? This is, this is so important, but Jared asked a question before too about like, how can you tell? I guess what, what you're suggesting is that there's, you can trace a development of the Hebrew language based on the texts that we have. You can right. tell some things are earlier, some things are clearly later, and then there's a bunch of stuff in the middle. So, I mean, that's just even worth knowing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, and and it's important. So, the point you raise is very useful and very important, just in terms of of grounding people. Literally, this is where the inscriptions come in. Yes. So, with the inscriptions, 
We have archaeological context. We have carbon dating. And these are things that were found through archaeological research. That's right. Digging, and you find them in the dirt, and you dig them up, and you read them. Okay. That's right. So, you find these inscriptions. These inscriptions are found at places like Samaria or Lachish or Arad or Kintiladaj Rud. And they have an archaeological context. There are items associated with them, oftentimes organic remains. These things can be sent off for carbon-14 tests. And we get solid dates for these things. There could be some debate about the dates at times, but we look at a constellation of evidence and we can date these pieces that are found archaeologically. So we know what Hebrew of the 8th century B.C., the 7th century B.C., the 6th century B.C., we know what it looked like. And the reason we know what it looked like is because we have inscriptions that have been in the ground for all these centuries, and they can be read. So, we know precisely what Hebrew looked like. And the fascinating thing is, when we compare the language of these inscriptions and various biblical texts, we find that the language of the inscriptions, for example, is pretty similar to, or basically the same as, something that we read in Samuel, or Kings, or various parts of of Genesis. And so, this is the linchpin. This inscriptional data gives us the comparative material we need to be able to say, this is, this biblical text is from the period of the monarchy. Uh, Or we have later inscriptions, too, from the Second Temple period. So, we know what Hebrew and Aramaic look like during those periods, and we know what the language looks like. We know the linguistic features, and we... Uh, so, we can look at that, uh, and then we can compare it with biblical texts like Chronicles, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, mm-hmm. and we say, look, these are the same. Yeah, so when – I mean, a question that many people ask, like, when was the Bible written? Mm-hmm. And that's over time. Right. And in a and sense, even, I mean, the, the, the yeah. things would be written over time. It might have been collected later, but that's not an easy question to answer, and and it takes, like, linguistic work – is part of that discussion of trying to determine when things might have been written. Right. Uh, That's absolutely correct. So, as you know, there are various sorts of ways in which scholars will approach this. One will be uh, linguistic, and that's, that's very important. And so, the basic thing that I'm suggesting is we have these inscriptions. They can be dated. We can compare them with the biblical text, and that functions as a metric for us so that we're basically anchoring the things that we're saying in real data, concrete data, the epigraphic record, the inscriptional record. So, that's definitely uh, a major feature of the dating of biblical texts. And so, that's the case. And of course, one of the things that's true as well is the Bible makes it clear that it's written in different periods as well. So, uh, if we look at the early chapters of, of uh, Samuel Kings, that's clearly narrative that at least in terms of its setting comes from the time period of Saul and David and early chapters of, of Kings with Solomon. So, the biblical text has those materials that at least in terms of the setting of the piece come from that time period. But then we also have things in the Bible such as the book of Jeremiah. And 
Jeremiah was a prophet of the 7th century and the early 6th century, whereas David was a figure of the 10th century. So even when we look at the Bible itself, there are chronological linchpins in it as well. So it was clearly, even according to the Bible itself, written at different time periods. And that's clear. And then we can compare the language of inscriptions quite often with the language of the Bible, and that gives us a separate way of attempting to date things as well. So, there are, it's indeed highly complex, and the date of setting and the date of composition are often very different things, but all of that data has to be integrated. And when we do it, and when we do it well, we come up with some pretty convincing dates for the biblical text and the time of the composition of this library. I should say the times of composition Mm -hmm. of this library that we have in the Bible. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the times because we've been talking about the the span of these different books being written, but I wanted to uh, mention and talk about, like, for instance, the book of Isaiah, Mm -hmm. which over time, scholars have said, well, there's a second Isaiah and there's a third Isaiah. And so, how do we, that may be a new concept for people, even just to even mention that, hey, that scholars think there's multiple sections of this book of Isaiah. How would you go about, because it's not, doesn't seem like, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's not, but I wouldn't think it's about dating, these are written hundreds of years apart, but there's something else that leads scholars to say, these are different compositions. They're not, it's not all one uniform book here. Right. There are definitely linguistic differences. So, Isaiah has 66 chapters, and linguistically, there are different blocks. The blocks are not neat and clean, but they're different blocks. The way that I often approach that subject is this way. I'll say to those listening to me, often uh, undergraduate students will bring in a lot of assumptions, and that's fine. But what I'll do is is say to them, with regard to Isaiah, I'll say, look at chapters 1 through 39, and we have references to Ahaz, uh, who was a king of, of Judah. We have reference to Rezin, who was a king uh, of Syria. We have references to Pekah, uh, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. We have references to Tiglath-Pileser III, who was a king of uh, Neo-Assyria. And the fascinating thing, and we have references to Hezekiah as well, mm-hmm. the fascinating thing is those kings are kings of the 8th century and Hezekiah, the early 7th century BCE. And so, I say to students, look at the actual content, read the text, and I'll always say to them, our fidelity is to the text. And so, when we look at 1 through 39, all of the references are 8th century BCE or in the case of Hezekiah, late 8th, early 7th century BCE. And then I'll say to them, take a look at Isaiah 40, and take a look especially at 44 and 45. And the fascinating thing there is that we have references to Cyrus. For example, the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45, we have reference to Cyrus. And the references make it clear that the Jerusalem temple has been destroyed. There are references to the need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. We know when it was destroyed. It was destroyed in 586 BCE by the Babylonians. And we also know that it was Cyrus the Great who defeated the last king of Babylon, Nabonidus. We know when he did it, 539 BCE or BC. And so, when we look at Isaiah 40, 
especially 44 and 45, for historical references, we say, my goodness, Cyrus was a figure of the second half of the 6th century BCE. He began to reign. People will put him about uh, 550 BCE, reigned until uh, about 530 BCE. And we say, my goodness, uh, there are references to the temple in that block of material. They presuppose that the temple's been destroyed and needs to be rebuilt. The text makes it clear Jerusalem's been desolated, needs to be rebuilt. And then the text refers to Cyrus as someone who's going to be the agency by which God rebuilds the temple and rebuilds the uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so, clearly, in 40 through 55, we're looking at texts that hail primarily from the 6th century BC, BCE, whereas in 1 through 39, uh, we see texts that hail from the 8th century BC, BCE. And we're not making this data up, it's in the text. And so, what I often do with people is just take them to the text and I say, let's read the text, let's let the chips fall where they may, and in the case of Isaiah, 1 through 39, fall nicely in the 8th century from someone we know, Isaiah the prophet of the 8th century, and 40 through 55 uh, come from the 6th century, and there's some debate about 56 through 66, and uh, there aren't historical markers, but in those first two big blocks, 1 through 39, uh, and in 40 through 55, we have lots of historical references. Uh, and so it's pretty clear that the book of Isaiah is a rolling corpus. And someone might say, what's the reason for that? Why? Why was this text, this book, augmented? And I think it had something to do with the power of the 8th century Isaiah. I think there was a school that basically gathered around him, a prophetic school of sorts, and they continued for a few centuries the traditions of the great Isaiah of the 8th century, yeah. and they continued to augment uh, the words and works of Isaiah of the 8th century as uh, the centuries rolled. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Introducing Bluehost Cloud ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things. 
just thinking about it and processing the information, I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash B-N-P. Yeah, that, that takes us across the ages, so to speak. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know, I mean, Jared knows this too, that there are people listening who are going to say, this is great. I remember my pastor and my teacher saying that, well, that Isaiah 40 and stuff that mentions the Babylonian captivity in Cyrus, that's predictive. But you're saying that, I mean, I agree with you, this is not predictive, but it's it's the setting. It just it just assumes an exilic time. That's right. But right? it's not it, predicting one day there'll be an exit. I just it just it plops you into something where all of a sudden it's like you've changed scenes like in a movie and you're like you were at a ranch in one setting and then you're in the city in the next and you clearly have 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 switched settings entirely and that's very important for trying to understand the development of these of this book. Right. I think so too. Absolutely. And so what I would say is, right, Cyrus is spoken of, for example, is a contemporary figure. We're talking about the text talks about things Cyrus is doing. And we know when Cyrus lived. And the temple's destruction is something that's a past event. And we know when that happened. It happened in 586. And it's described in this big block of Isaiah, 40 through 55, especially 44, 45, chapter 40 as well, is something that's already occurred. And so, that's right. Sometimes people will resist the actual text. Mm -hmm. And what I always say is, let's read the text. Let's read the text, word for word, line by line, and see what it says. And I think... It's, for me, it's it's very much this way. My fidelity is to the text and to what it says. We all grow up hearing things. It doesn't matter the tradition we're raised in, yeah. uh, within Judaism, within Christianity, within the various segments of Judaism, the various uh, segments of Christianity. Uh, there's an interpretive tradition that are part of those, and that interpretive tradition is rather beautiful and magnificent. But when I study the text with students, uh, or when I give lectures, I say, look, the interpretive traditions are really fascinating, but right now we're going to look at what the actual text says. And I believe you can discern that, and I can discern that. And yeah. and that's why I'll often, well, I, I never talk in generalities about the biblical text, or I try never to do that. <laughs> I always take people specifically to text and say, let's, let's, uh, Lots of people talk about the biblical text in broad terms, right. and I always say to the students, I say, let's look at the text. Yeah, how do you deal with this here? These words in front of yeah. you, what do, what do we do with this? So, yeah. so I mean, the, the question of like, you know, how old is the Bible, where does it come from? There's a linguistic dimension. Mm-hmm. There's also like, with the, Isaiah's the example, there's a content dimension. It's just read and see what it says and what is being presumed about the setting, for example. and um, Right. Yeah, I mean, it'd be nice if we just had clear dates about everything, but we really don't. Which does get us back, I mean, just, you know, we, with with the few minutes that we have left, 
so maybe we can't go into as much detail as would be fun, but like some of these inscriptions are, are mm-hmm. really interesting for helping us understand like the setting of the writing of some of this stuff. And my favorite one is the Siloam Tunnel inscription. That's, I, I love that. I studied that in graduate school too. But t- tell us just briefly what that is and its connection to the Bible and why it's sort of important linguistically. That indeed is one of my favorites as well. So, there is an 1,800-foot-long tunnel in Jerusalem, and it functioned to carry water from outside the city, underground, to the inside of the city. And there's this wonderful inscription written in Hebrew. Uh, The Hebrew script, because we can date scripts, handwriting develops through time. Mm-hmm. Ours, our parents, our grandparents, uh, and the ancients as well, and Hebrew script did as well. And so, the script of the Siloam Tunnel inscription is, it's basically an 8th century, late 8th century script. And here's what that inscription says. It says, in essence, two teams of stonemasons began at opposite ends, 1,800 feet apart, and they chiseled through solid rock, often following fissures in the natural rock when they could. We can see it. One can walk through it and see this, even today. But they chiseled through that rock, and they met in the middle. And the inscription is fascinating because it says that when they were getting close to meeting, they could hear the voice or perhaps the sound uh, of the chiseling or the Mm -hmm. voice of those doing the chiseling. It's a magnificent, magnificent inscription, and the tunnel itself is magnificent as well. And it's mentioned in the Bible too, right? In in 2 Kings, the tunnel is mentioned. That's right. So, one can look at 2 Kings chapter 20 and around verse 20 or 22, and it actually mentions that Hezekiah did this. And of course, the Bible details why he did it. Basically, Hezekiah had rebelled from the Neo-Assyrian king Sennacherib. He knew that Sennacherib was going to come knocking on his door, looking for tribute and destroying in the process of making that trip. And he knew that Jerusalem was going to be besieged. He knew the city was vulnerable because a major water source was outside. And so, the Bible describes all of that, Second uh, Kings 18 and 19. And then it describes or references the tunnel that he had built as part of his preparations for what he knew would be a a terrible siege of the Neo-Assyrians. So, that's a great text because we have the linkage between the inscription, 8th century Hebrew inscription, and biblical texts, which references the fact that Hezekiah built this tunnel or had it built. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, absolutely scintillating. And, and it seemed to work because the Assyrians weren't successful in Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, good for him. Exa- Bully for him. Yep, that's right. Well, we're at the end of uh, our conversation here, but just really fascinating stuff that actually appreciate your attention to the details of the text and how meticulous you are about that. And we can find so much information when we just pay attention is what I'm hearing yes. from you. But if people wanted to learn more about uh, the work that you do and, and the things that you've been uh, talking about here, where can people find you? Do you have a faculty page or book uh, maybe that you want to point people to? Sure. Uh, the book that has a lot of information about these connections between uh, a book which I wrote, which has a lot of discussion of this sort of thing, 
is a book entitled Writing and Literacy in the World of Ancient Israel. Uh, Epigraphic Evidence from the Iron Age came out about a decade ago. And and it's not thick. Yeah, it's it's not thick. And, and I tried to make sure that it's an easy read. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not full of technical jargon at all. Uh, I wanted to make sure that it was accessible to ordinary people and not just scholars. I hope it's useful to scholars. But that's one place people could turn uh, and... Yeah, I have my own blog, which I'll put stuff on on occasion, rolstonepigraphy.com. And that's a good place, especially for really new finds, when when someone finds an inscription and some it's excavated. I'll often blog about it quite immediately, usually within a matter of hours or days. So that's someplace people could turn. And, right. and right, my faculty uh, page at George Washington University has some information about publications as well. Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on and, and just sharing your, your knowledge and, and expertise with us. It's really great. Well, it's great to be with, with you all, and thanks so much, and we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Yep, thank you. Take care now. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. We have a special announcement. A, again, a world premiere announcement here. World premiere. That coming soon. It's but not out world, yet, Because the world cares Yes, about exactly. This. Yeah. Uh, we have our second installment in our Bible for Normal People book series. Pete is coming out with Exodus for Normal People. It's not going to be coming out quite yet, but just put it on your calendar, put it on your radar. In the next few months, you'll be getting more news about this release. But, Pete, you want to say a few words about it? Yeah, it's sort of all done, I guess. And it's, you know, the audio version, too all that kind of stuff so yeah it's it's uh 1400 pages long and it's about 175 dollars <laughs> no it is not no it's very readable and short and all that kind of stuff but i had a lot of fun doing it and some of you remember i did a series um pete ruins exodus it was a five or six part series so so for me that was the beginning of getting into some of this stuff but the book's really different than the series because it's a book and and i was able to get into stuff Really, in a different level, but I think still a very readable level. So it's it was it was so much fun for me to write that, and I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. So if you like Genesis for normal people and looking forward to Exodus for normal people, again, just be on the lookout. Stay tuned for more information as it comes available. Thanks so much. Thanks as always to our team: executive producer Megan Kamick, audio engineer Dave Gerhart, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion Stephanie Spade and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. <laughs>